Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports, Thursday edition of the show. And so you know uh, that's always going to be, we've got Barton Simmons there, Tom Fernelli there, Chip here. We have, uh, we're going to review our uh, season win total locks that we did before the year. We've got just, uh, I, I don't know if anybody from the listening audience actually has kept tabs or if the locks doc is the uh the final say so but we will review uh the way that things went we had a quite a quite an interesting finish uh, as barton's charge uh came up short i guess uh i don't know we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit we've got a lot of headlines to get to including uh the latest in coaching news louisville landing scott satterfield mel tucker to colorado mike loxley to maryland uh some kelly bryant announcing he will go to missouri lots to get to guys but i want to turn our attention back to re- a little bit of review tom fernelli barton simmons oh and we're going to pick army navy because of course i mean you got to it's for the troops uh y'all y'all tied we got a friggin' tie for the regular season title. Well, I would I would just like to point out that while we're both eleven games over five hundred, I've got two more wins overall. So is that, that is, the tiebreaker? Well, no, no, no. That is not <laughs> the tiebreaker. Because there was never any discussion on what the rules were. Because clearly, had I known there was a tiebreaker, uh, I, I would have been I would have been defaulting to volume. So I don't know what the tiebreaker is. Maybe the bowls are the tiebreaker, in which case, if, if we look back to last year as a, uh, a guide to what's going to happen this year, I'm in trouble. Um, but I, I don't know. Maybe it's Army-Navy. I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't love that as a tiebreaker. But maybe, maybe, we sh- maybe it's just a shared championship. You know, in the Ivy League, doesn't matter head-to-head. It's just conference win-loss record shared championships maybe that's how we do it but uh certainly i'm not going to concede a championship based on number of picks i already printed the (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt so um we we said that we would and uh and to review it as we would do at the top of any i mean barton went eight and oh everything was on the table it was championship week and uh, so let's go. Under 44 and a half, Utah, Washington. I mean, Barton, beautiful. Just uh, just you, you cruise the whole time. Did you, were you ever sweating it? No, oh, absolutely not. That was a, that was a beaut. Uh, UGA plus 13 and a half. Again, just cruising the whole time. Uh, Oklahoma minus eight. That one. Not not as uh not as comfortable uh, the whole way. Ohio State minus fourteen. The under fifty three Clemson Pitt really really strong cover right there. Uh, Clemson minus twenty seven and a half. You know a, a little bit dicey, but uh, Chase Bryce was able to get the touchdowns that you needed to get the cover, but also not do too much to be able to ruin that over. Uh, the under the over in sixty four UCF Memphis hits and the Akron plus thirty hits. Eight and O. How were you feeling last Saturday watching it go down? It was. I mean, it was. It was great. Uh, the the toughest one was balance, and I knew it would be. But balancing that under fifty three in Clemson Pitt with a Clemson minus twenty seven and a half was uh, that, that that took some that took some navigating, and I'm, I appreciate all the efforts from that Clemson team. It was funny. I tweeted out. Uh, I tweeted out something to the effect of uh, it takes, you know, this this Clemson team is really special uh, for being able to cover 10, being able to cover 27 and a half and under 53 after after giving up 10 points in the first half or something like that. And uh, and I got all these like angry response tweets like, oh, well, you look who they're playing, though. Like, it's like you guys are missing the point. (laughs) I just. I just appreciate the way they balanced that thing. And then Akron, it was 28-3 to at halftime. 
and twenty-eight to three final score. So that was a that was a that was a good one. That was, that was very pretty. Uh, Tom, you it was not for a lack of success as you uh, as you pitched a four and one championship week. Uh, we go Utah plus five and a half with the loss, the lone loss. Uh, Georgia plus thirteen and a half, Oklahoma minus eight, and Ohio State minus fourteen. Those were all, uh, you know, lock agreements. By the way, that also means that our uh, lock unity with Oklahoma minus eight hits. So, what does that put us at? Probably three and one for the year on lock unity. Believe so. And then uh, the under fifty two and a half Fresno Boise. Tom was popping off on the text thread as uh, as I'm sitting there. Why, you know, just sort of getting, you know, working on my final Clemson write up from the Bank of America Stadium press box. You know, I'm working on it at mid third quarter. And <laughs> Tom is sweating, losing his over under, his under 52 and a half if that thing went to overtime. But it did go to overtime, but Fresno got it taken care of early. So uh, props to the Bulldogs and Jeff Tedford on the win. Four and one on the week. So that's 57 and 46 for Tom. 55 and 44 for Barton. They are both plus 11. Tom, as he mentioned, with a, a two win lead. So I guess which one of you is the uh, the BCS champion and which one of you is the AP champion? Because that's kind of what we've got here. Well, to be honest, if if you go by units one and win percentage, Barton's got me beat on both. Ooh. Uh, that's that big of you to say that. I think we share the I share I think we share the regular season championship, and then uh, and then we see what happens in bowl season to to break the tie. Um, but, my, my go ahead, Tom. No, I agree. Okay, all right. I mean, we don't have to worry about Chip. We know that. Yeah, I mean, I back <laughs> the the backsliding. So let's see, from after after starting having a good strong middle of the season, week eleven two and five, uh, week twelve two and four. Week thirteen, four and four, and then championship week two and five. Just lost it, man. Just I had it, and then I lost it. Alabama minus thirteen and a half. Never had a chance. Uh, over sixty three and a half. Alabama, Georgia. Close, close. I don't regret it. Uh, Oklahoma minus eight. That's the win on the lock. Unity. Cal plus three. Cal was a mess. Cal was just they. They were not going to be able to get anything going. The only thing good they did in that game was try to hold on defensively for as long as they could. Pitt plus 27 and a half. Thought I liked it uh, about mid-second quarter, and then that was it. That was it for uh, Pitt scoring. Under 56 in South Carolina Akron, also a win thanks to that scoreless second half. Then under 51 Virginia Tech Marshall, never had a chance. I was way off on that one. Uh, that ended up being a very high-scoring affair in a Virginia Tech win. So 2-5 and five on the week, 49-48. and 48. Boys, it's been a rough month on the Locks podcast, but I finished the regular season above 500 and slightly not in the money, I guess, when you take into consideration juice. Yeah, but but you this is you paid to play the game a little bit, you know? Yeah. You just paid to play. So that there's if you're looking at your season plus 1 unit or I guess plus 1 game uh, then it was a it was a fun ride. It, it no was regrets. A fun ride. No yeah. regrets. <laughs> um, do, do you want to know how many units you're at? Yeah. Assuming standard juice, you'd be at minus three point four six units. And yeah. as a team, uh, as a group, we are one sixty one and one thirty eight. Uh, that is fifty three point eight five percent up eight point three five units. So eight point three five denarii. And I will say that you know. Both you and Barton both had eight and no weeks this season. I never had an undefeated week all year. So mm. if we're betting a hundred thousand dollars a unit, uh, you made and I do close to a million, <laughs> close to a million bucks this year. So congratulations! You're welcome. <laughs> um, all right, let's. Uh, do you do you want to go through the over under win totals real quick? Sure. Yeah, we're, we're, I don't even know who won on those. Um, let's do it. Okay, so. Uh, for Nelly, the Purdue under six. I'm sorry, Jeff Brom stayed at Purdue. That's a loss. Uh, Arizona under seven and a half. That is a win. Uh, the the Wildcats ended up 
missing the postseason, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pitt under five and a half. That's definitely a loss. Uh, NC State over seven. That cashed as a win. And how about Tulane over five and a half? Your that boys. was a great cover there. <sighs> that, that wave came crashing in late. What they end up? They won like three of their last four games or something like yes. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, really, really strong. Uh, Ole Miss under six. A little sweaty. They showed some spunk, but as Barton and others uh, and all of us here on this podcast called. You weren't gonna, you weren't gonna like their chances to be able to win those games late, and so uh, in the Egg Bowl, as they showed very little life, Ole Miss falls under six at five and seven, and then Penn State over nine and a half. That is a loss, uh, though. The Nittany Lions finished nine and three. The Nittany Lions don't. The Nittany Lions felt like they needed to be a whole lot better to cover that total than what we saw on the field, Tom, but. It's crazy to think that given the product that they had on the field, you still only came half a game and a few bounces away from hitting that. A one-point loss to Ohio State or a blowing the fourth-quarter lead against Michigan State away. Hmm. Uh, Barton, Louisville under seven. Boy, you are on it. Did you know that Petrino was definitely probably going to be out by the end of this? Uh, I suspected. I suspected this was going to be Petrino's last year. Um. Yeah, so we got Louisville under seven. That's a win. That was a that was a total. I, I got to be honest though. That that was a total fade. Brian Van Gorder play. <laughs> that was a. If you are going to go and hire Brian Van Gorder as your replacement defensive coordinator, I am fading you. Uh, and so that that worked out. Boston College over six. That's a win. Uh, the Eagles finish, I believe, at eight and four. Uh, Duke over six. That's also a win. The Blue Devils finish seven and five. Uh, or maybe even eight and four. No, seven and five. Uh, the the where you got that Duke cover with over six was when they beat Northwestern, Baylor, and Army to start the season. Which yeah. you know, looking at so. Northwestern and Army now, and looking at Duke, uh, at least the way it played against Wake Forest in the regular season finale, man, it's a long football season. A lot can happen. No, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Washington State under six and a half. Uh, that that didn't happen. Washington State was in the top ten of the playoff rankings. Uh, TCU over seven and a half. They lost seven safeties and dozens of players to injury for the year. Wyoming over six and a half. That was a TCU and Wyoming, and I guess even Washington State. We kind of saw those going the opposite direction, huh? Wyoming ended up making it. I mean, not that it was ever in doubt, but didn't they end up like six and six? They did. Yeah. yeah, that actually ended up being kind of close, which was surprising given the way it started. Uh, and then South Carolina over seven. That one is a push. So Tom at four and three on his win totals. Barton at three, three and one on his win totals. Chips got Boston College over six. That cashed. Arizona State over four and a half. The Herm experience. The betting on Herm paid off. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, Virginia Tech under eight and a half. That was also a win. I was with Barton on the fade Washington State, and then Stanford over eight. Is that a push? Uh, no. Is it? I think it's a push. I think yeah, it's a you're push. Right. Yeah, it's a push. So nothing but pushes uh, as I go three, one, and two on the win. Pretty good. So you, so you win the so. You end up winning the win total, huh? What is so? If I won the win total, that's like the NIT. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go to Madison Square Garden, and I got to play on the Tuesday after the Monday National Championship game. I won the NIT. Congratulations to me! Hey, you get a banner. Hey, Put the banner up. That's right, just like the Indianapolis Colts, division champions. Let's hang it up. Um, all right. So what we will be doing once we get into next week will be uh, a whole nother competition. We're going to try to take it bit by bit. And, you know, we're not going to ask our experts here to, to give you an against the spread pick from two weeks out when we could have all sorts of player attrition. Like we want to give you uh, the information as much as we can so that you've got the winners uh, going into bowl season. But uh, in a little bit, we will also get a, a larger landscape look at some of our favorite bowl games. Um, but to the news headline of the day, all right, Kelly Bryant's going to Missouri. Uh, Drew Locke was one of the most prolific, uh, quarterbacks in sec history. 
Uh, Tom, I'm going to start with you. When you look at the addition of Kelly Bryant and when you looked at Kelly Bryant as a free agent, a uh, free agent quarterback on the transfer market, graduate transfer, did you feel like he was um, a candidate worthy of the Rose ceremony treatment that he was getting? No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a uh, a lot of Clemson shine on Kelly Bryant. That's not to say there's anything. I don't. I don't think he's bad. It's just. I don't think he was worth the amount of attention that he was getting for his transfer and some of the teams that were interested because I think that if you watch Kelly Bryant play, I mean, he's a he's a quarterback that was kind of like game manager and kind of Jalen Hurts-ish compared to what Alabama was dealing with the last few years where he was good enough for what they had everywhere else to continue winning games. But when it came to beating elite teams, he's not quite quite that level of quarterback to get there as we saw when Clemson played Alabama in the playoff last year and as we saw why they made the switch to Trevor Lawrence this year now so I I think that he's gonna if he's going to Missouri if you're gonna expect him to just step in and replace the production that Drew Locke was putting up you're probably gonna be a bit disappointed in what you get because I think a lot of Kelly Bryant's statistical success at Clemson was more based on the talent he had around him than just his own talent. So I I think it's good for Missouri to get an experienced grad transfer in there who's obviously played in big games and has plenty he's plenty of starting experience. It's just I don't think that he's some like kind of assassin who's going to come in and lead Missouri to like an SEC East title or anything. He's not that good. I mean, I fancy Drew Locke to be a very good downfield passer. And I do not fancy Kelly Bryant as a very good downfield passer. Yeah, Mizzou's offense is going to look pretty different next year if Kelly Bryant's at starter. And Barton, you mentioned the on Twitter the the Derek Dooley angle to this. Like how how does uh, you know a one year rental of Kelly Bryant? What does that mean in your you know in your thoughts or your estimations on you know what Barry Odom and Derek Dooley and, and Missouri want out of that offense next year and moving forward? Well, first of all, I, I think there's a lot of um, there's a there's a lot of angles to this that to where it makes sense for Missouri. I, I found it interesting, you know, when I walked into the office the day after, and you know, he picked Missouri. People were like, sort of muttering, "Why the hell did Kelly Bryant pick Missouri?" Uh, and people were text like people were texting me like, "I can't believe he picked Missouri and not Auburn." Or like, I I actually think this makes a ton of sense for Kelly Bryant. It clearly makes a ton of sense for Missouri too. I mean, Missouri. A, like they feel like their quarterback room is isn't very good. Uh, clearly, w- with them chasing Kelly Bryant, that that speaks to that. Um, and they've got a pretty good team, other than quarterback coming back. And so, I do think a Kelly Bryant goes to Missouri, and immediately makes them a significantly more valid contender than without him. Um, you look at their schedule; they got seven home games. Next year, they've got their cross-conference games are Arkansas and Ole Miss. Uh, their non-conference game is West Virginia without Will Greer. Um, so you, you, you're talking about a Missouri team that has the potential to have like a 9-3 and three year, um, has the potential to be better even than this year. And then you're, t- you're looking at it from Kelly Bryant's perspective. And yes, like I, I, what I, while Drew Locke wasn't quite as productive this year as he was last year, um, I think what you're going to hear from NFL scouts is that he is a more compelling prospect because what they did in that offense was incorporate pro-style elements uh, behind Derek Dooley that make him a more valid NFL candidate and prospect, make him more prepared. He learned that offense in one year, was really successful in it. Like Kelly Bryant saw that. Um, and while you can look at sort of the fit at Auburn, and, and him being a mobile, dual-threat quarterback uh, that Gus Malzahn has always wanted and needed. Um, you also look at, from Kelly Bryant's perspective, and he's trying to play in the NFL. That's the reason he's making this move. He's college in the end, in game for him. He wants to play in the NFL. He wants to develop. So Derek Dooley is there, and and I think his his job this year with Drew Locke validates him a little bit. This this decision validates Derek Dooley a little bit. And it's, and it's sort of an indictment on Auburn, too, that – Jarrett Stidham stalled. If any, at best, he stalled. At, you know, at worst, he regressed. And uh, beyond that, look, Drew Locke and Jarrett Stidham 
are very similar athletes when they're coming out of high school. If, in fact, Jared Stidham was probably more athletic. Jared Stidham, I don't, he rushed for, I think he had negative rushing yards this year, uh, whereas Drew Locke had like 200 rushing yards. Um, yeah, Jared Stidham had negative rushing yards this year, which is kind of remarkable when you include sta- uh, sacks. And so there's just a lot of reasons for me this makes sense for Kelly Bryant, and there's a lot of reasons it can be successful, even if we're not talking about success, meaning he's some Heisman candidate or makes Missouri some SEC East threat to beat Georgia. I think it makes Missouri a legitimate threat to be like a 9-3 and level team. You know, you mentioned Stidham's rushing stats this year, and this is off topic, but it just reminds me of my favorite stat this season. What's that? Clayton Thorson, Northwestern's quarterback, finished the year with negative 104 rushing yards and nine rushing touchdowns. That's that's that's, <laughs> that's my favorite stat I've seen all season long. That's bang for your buck. Right Wait, there. hold on. Negative 100 what? Negative 104 rushing yards and nine rushing touchdowns. <laughs> he's only moving forward when he's crossing the plane. Pretty much. <laughs> Um. Uh, all right. So, all right. The uh, the the win total. We're we're long, long way away from that. So, um, you say Missouri can be a nine and three team if I set Missouri's and then again schedule in has to be set and you have to do your your wins and losses. But if I was to give you eight, uh, if, I, if I was to give you eight and as an over under, Barton, would you take over? Uh, I would take over before I take under. Yes, Tom. Uh, I don't know. The schedule next year is not. I mean, they've got you got they got what seven home games. I, looking at their schedule, Wyoming on the road to start. I think that's a win. West Virginia is probably a loss. I would think. Although no, West Virginia loses. Yeah, I'd go over because West Virginia is losing a lot itself. Mm. I w- I my gut says to go under only because it is you're losing some uh. Uh, one of the best quarterbacks in program history. So we'll uh, we'll we'll see how that goes for them. I think. I mean, I think what benefits them a little too is we like Bart mentioned they've got seven, but their their road game, their road schedule is kind of convenient. If, yeah, I guess I mean, they're playing yeah. Wyoming, which is winnable. They're playing Vandy, which is winnable. They're playing Kentucky, which will be difficult, but it's winnable. And and Kentucky loses a ton this year. Yeah. They've got Arkansas, which is winnable. Their only real tough road game next year is Georgia. And Georgia, you'll take them on the road because you're probably going to lose to them regardless. Exactly. Missouri. So I, I, Dark so Missouri, horse. Missouri, put, putting a little, planting a little seed. <laughs> you know, I'm going to start watering that thing this offseason and build myself up to this, but I, I may be pretty bullish on Missouri by the time we start talking, talking win totals. Barton, if the uh, if the time that we've spent together doing this podcast has told me anything, you'll definitely be bullish on Missouri come July. (laughs) That's one of your teams. I don't talk myself out of things. I just I just talk myself into them. That's right. Can't can't wait to see that. Can't wait to see that July podcast topic pop up on my phone. Can Mizzou win the SEC? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, let's Barton. How long over under? one and a half, two and a half years before Louisville is able to finish in the top three of the ACC Atlantic. Um, <clears throat> I think it might take. I don't know. I don't know. Top three. Top three. And and you said the overrunner is two and a half years. Correct. I'll take. Oof. I don't know. I just don't know how bad it is on that roster. I don't know how much it's just poorly coached I, I mean I'll take the I will take the under just as a as a blind bet on Scott Satterfield in, in a similar way that Tom took the over on Tulane as just a blind bet on the, the green wave figuring it out uh, I, I, I think that was a really good hire by the way just off topic for a second kind of tangent tangentially related here is did you guys study at all the uh, USA Today release of uh assistant salary database i did not did it just come out this week came out this week okay uh the the most glaring thing on there i hate to and i hate to pick on this guy and there's there's nothing personal but you know who like one of the highest paid assistant coaches in college football was this year 
Brian Van Gorder, he was making $950,000. Did you know he was one Louisville was 128th in the country in scoring defense with their defensive coordinator making $950,000 a year. The number one and number two scoring defenses in the country combined had defensive coordinators making less than that. <laughs> I have been at some experiences around small businesses, startups, uh, and, and maybe even this has flirted into the restaurant industry a little bit, but when, when you realize that the management and the oversight is little, as Bobby Petrino probably did, as Tom Jurich, the athletic director, is under fire because of the Rick Petino scandal and no one's really looking over your shoulder, it's really tempting to just sort of open the door and let all your friends in. And, like, and that's exactly what that was. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of like uh, somebody gets promoted to a management job at a startup and he's like, yo, I've got this huge budget. Who wants in? And I kind of feel like it was the moment when the skee-ball machine just starts spitting tickets out and you don't tell anyone that the skee-ball machine is broken. You just get all your buddies around with your pillowcase and you get all the tickets. And that was Bobby Petrino with all of the money that Louisville had in its athletic budget, giving it out to friends and family. I mean, I was going to say, I think another fun way to look at it is that not, not if you just look at this year, it's not going to be as great, but if you just look at the scope of their entire careers and what they've accomplished, that Brian Van Gorder was making 25 grand less this year than Bud Foster. (laughs) (laughs) And, and he wasn't, he wasn't hired away from another job. Yeah. There wasn't was like off- a bidding war that I remember. Oh, he was an analyst. He was an off-field analyst making $40,000 a year or whatever, like getting offset money from Notre Dame. I mean, he had, he had, they had no one to hire him away from. There was no leverage he was working with, and they fired him. They paid him nearly a million dollars. And, and, to, and so they paid – so they go and bid against no one to pay Brian Van Gorder a million dollars. And they've got uh, two in-laws as assistant coaches, one son as an assistant coach. Like that's like the stat. They had just given up, totally given up. And then there was what I saw the quote from the one high school coach this week that Satterfield or he said that they've got like some four star defensive end that's committed to Kentucky that had no, like 100 offers and Petrino never showed up at the school once. Yeah. So it's that like was 10 miles away. Yeah, so that was the big, and you know, I guess we'll start getting into Satterfield now. But that was one of the big things that like was getting all the applause from the press conference. Was at one point, and and I, there weren't a lot. There were like I don't think Scott Scott Satterfield wasn't taking many veiled shots at Petrino, even though it would have been an easy target. But one that he did say was, you know, this will be an open, this will be an open program once again for. Uh, the community and high school coaches, and that was like a bit got a big like hurrah from folks in attendance because I, uh, predictably, Bobby Petrino was apparently just a total jerk to uh, to local coaches and programs and didn't didn't put much of an effort into recruiting. Bobby Petrino, get out of here! <laughs> I mean the so the positivity is something that I've heard from a lot of people inside Louisville, and that's and that's fine, but. Um, and Tom, I know that you you get really deep into the efficiency metrics, putting in everything for your formula. But as I was, you know, going through, and we've been having to write a bajillion. We've got a, a by the way, a CBS Sports Bowl betting preview guide that'll be coming out. I, you should get it somewhere. I'll advertise it later. But we've been having to just go all in to all of the numbers that you need to know. And like Tom, Appalachian State had one of the most efficient defenses in the country. And so that's where I'm starting to take a step back, both for the future of the Cardinals and the future of the Mountaineers, because that defense also has a lot of alums, a lot of former players uh, on staff. The defensive line coaches, uh, I believe the assistant head coach, number two. I would imagine that if they're going to promote internally, he's one of the top candidates. The defensive coordinators were all, all did a pretty good job. And that's where... I think that my biggest question for Satterfield making that move is, is he taking those assistants with him? Who are the assistants that he's going to hire? Because Satterfield is a a very creative offensive mind. And given the step up in talent, and I do believe that there is skill position talent that is definitively better than what he had at Appalachian State, 
I think that the Cardinals will be able to be more in sync, more dangerous, and more cutting edge as opposed to being maybe a little bit more stuck in the ways of Bobby Petrino. But this was a you know this is a defense that I don't think Scott Satterfield can fix right away. Well, no, I, yeah, go ahead. I, well, I, I would say this. I mean, I think one one thing that I like I've liked about Appalachian State's defense, and one of the things like when you watch the I. I it's seared in my mind watching them play Tennessee a couple years ago uh, when Tennessee was heading into the season um, as a favorite in the SEC. It was, it, was, it was the year they ended up going like a disappointing 9-3. and three. Uh, And they almost lost to App State in the season opener, went to overtime. I just remember that was an undersized defensive front, but it was so active and, it was, and they played so hard. They, made, they were just so tough to block that – I think, I mean, they're used to playing teams. You talk about all the, the Power Five teams they play, whether it's Penn State this year, whether it's Tennessee two years ago. You know, last year they almost beat Wake Forest. They lost by one, I think. Uh, they they played against Georgia last year and and lost by lost thirty one to ten or whatever. But it was a competitive game to where you could t- you know they weren't outmatched to the extent you would expect them to be against what ended up being the, the, the second best team in college football. And so I just think it's not like he's not used to playing with guys that are either undersized or or outmatched. What what they do so well is is put together really difficult schemes to block, and they get the guys to play really hard. So how quickly do guys buy in? Because I think they'll ha- that that Scott Satterfield will be really good, and that staff will be really good at getting their guys to play hard when that buy-in starts taking place. Mm. Yeah, the thing I noticed when I watched Appalachian State's defense, I mean, it's not like I've watched every game of theirs this year, but what I have watched and seen, the things I notice is they don't give up big plays, they tackle, and they generally do their job, which I think is, you know, <laughs> Very- three key <laughs> things to do on defense. They don't have a ton of great athletes, but you rarely see guys out of position or, you know, miss not, not in their gap, not in their run fit. They don't miss a lot of tackles, and that just leads to, you know, making it difficult on your opponent to move the ball down the field. Um, all right, so for the for the, the Scott Satterfield, we, we said two and a half. I threw that to Barton. What about you, Tom? Uh, top three, which means that, you know, if Clemson's always going to be up there, you're asking Louisville to either be up there with a, a Syracuse and then Louisville, an NC State and then Louisville, a Florida State and then Louisville, Boston College and Louisville. Like, there's there's – I, I don't think that it's going to take much to get them out of the seventh spot in that division, but my question is how long do you think it would take them to get up to the third spot? I would go over two and a half just because, I mean, I, I believe in Satterfield as a coach too. It's just I feel like this is going to be somewhat of a rebuild because we still don't know, even with Satterfield taking over, how many players are going to want to leave still. And then you look, Clemson's not going anywhere. Florida State's likely going to bounce back. Syracuse seems to be on an upward trend. NC State's been good the last few years. Boston College isn't going to be a pushover. So I feel like with that division, it's one of the tougher divisions in football. So just I think it's just somewhat more logical that to think that it's going to take Satterfield some time to come in, bring in players that fit what he wants to do, and then just get that program into the shape where we saw it the last few years, you know, under Lamar Jackson when it was one of the better teams in the ACC. Also finalized this week, we've got Mike Loxley introduced as Maryland's head coach. He was the Broyles Award winner as the top assistant coach in the country from being offensive coordinator at Alabama. He is yet another uh, Alabama offensive coordinator to use that as a launching point onto another job. The the Loxley to Maryland connection, based on everything that happened for him at New Mexico, you know, in in a similar way uh, to some of the like like Maryland felt like the one place where he was going to be able to be welcomed back, and and I think my gut is that this is a pretty a pretty good hire. Um, you know, I I don't necessarily give as much uh, as much credit for offensive chops. I mean, he's been the play caller for one of the best offenses in the entire country. The only one not named Oklahoma, but um, he's got a talented roster to inherit, but it's his, it's his DC connections. It's his familiarity with Maryland. Um, That kind of makes this seem like a perfect fit for Loxley, at least now for Maryland. And uh, I guess, I guess I'll go to you first, Tom for Maryland. Do you feel like this was received well by the Terps? to be able to welcome someone back? Was there any fanfare here? Because it, it kind of felt like from the outside, you know, what were we dealing with? Everyone's industry-approved list of candidates on the rise and then Mike Loxley? 
It's like yeah. uh, they did for the North Carolina job. Everyone's industry approved candidates, and then Mac Brown. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think the reaction has been pretty positive for the most part for Maryland because, like you mentioned, I don't know how wide of a field Maryland really had to choose from here. I know that the, all the pre-approved candidates were there. It's just I don't know how much interest there really was in the job given everything that's gone on in that athletic department over the last year. So I, I, I think they're fine with it. But like you alluded to, I'm a little – I think that Maryland's going to accept him because of what he's already done at Maryland and how much time he's been there and his ability to recruit. But I'm still somewhat surprised that while what Maryland's coming off of with Jordan McNair and the DJ Durkin and the whole culture of that program – and I'm not equating the two things. It's just I think that we need to remember that while Mike Loxley was at New Mexico, it's not just that he went 2-26. and 26, It's that – there was the sexual harassment claim filed against him. He was suspended for getting into an altercation with one of his assistant coaches. His kid got in some trouble with it, lending his car to another player for it with like a DUI. So it's like there, I, I understand that was a long time ago and people have mostly forgotten about it. I just wonder, though, if if that could be something that, you know, kind of bites Maryland in the butt. But as far as what he's going to do while he's there, I think the key is going to be, you know, Maryland – Barton can attest to this. Recruiting has not been Maryland's problem. You know, they've had talent on that team. They've just had a hard time turning that talent into wins. And I think that's what Lockley's Lockley's going to have to do. He's being brought in. They love his recruiting acumen in the DMV area and what he's going to be able to bring his talent wise. It's just, is he going to be able to turn that talent into a good football team? That's, that's what we're going to have to see. Yeah. It's such an odd, such an odd situation because he's, it's sort of this coming home moment, and it's a feel-good moment in a lot of ways. And he was sort of the the consensus candidate, in some ways the safe candidate. And yet, this is a program that is looking to fix what has been painted as some sort of toxic culture by hiring a guy that went 2-26 and 26 at New Mexico and punched an assistant coach. Yeah. Uh, it's just weird. And, and I don't... And I, I also think it's it's probably unfair to sort of damn coaches for failures at impossible jobs that are impossible to win at. Like it's probably really tough to win at New Mexico, and it's probably a like Mike Loxley has a much better shot at winning it at, and, and being really successful at Maryland, a, a program that's home that he knows the landscape of that he can recruit really well to, than going out there to the middle of nowhere in New Mexico and trying to attract people to that program so i don't want to i don't want to say that that new mexico tenure means he can't be a great head coach it's just sort of this odd compromise that maryland has to make to find a a consensus candidate with the flaws on his resume that mike loxley has while still having the successes and broils award and national championship uh bullet points as well so it's it's a very it's it's odd and interesting and yet probably to me it feels like this was you know, the, the right hire. I mean, I think everyone around the Maryland program, to me, appears to be happy with this, given how, you know, given how difficult it would have been to navigate going with someone else. But what defines winning for Maryland? Like, what, if you're Mike Loxley, and there there are certainly numerous personal reasons why you would want to go back, and there's plenty of, uh, you know, you I could see how that, sets up as, a, as a, something that you want to get back into, knowing the high school coaches, knowing the area, knowing everything. But are you stepping into a job where you almost, like from the outside, us disconnected from inside that program, looking at annual games against Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, like are, are you stepping into a job where seven wins is the ceiling? Like is, is, there, is there a future in the next four years where you could see Maryland? And look, we said it. Talented roster. Like the young players on this team have flashed this season. When you know, not not very efficient, as we have said oftentimes here on the Locks podcast, but always very uh, explosive. You know, hitting home runs and then going quiet for a while. You know, where like what is the ceiling for a Mike Loxley led Maryland team over the next four or five years? I don't know what the ceiling is for Mike Loxley led team. I and. and I just don't. I just it's hard to really know. But I think I do think that to to paint Maryland as having a like a low ceiling because of the the 
division that they're in and the conference they're in. I'm not sure I buy that. I, I for, for some reason I I think whether you know they got Under Armour money behind them, uh, they're in a, a a very fertile recruiting territory if they can lock it down. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that there is some ceiling on Maryland football. Now whether Mike Lockley's the guy to unlock it, certainly he has he presents a lot of elements that are gonna uh, that are gonna be favorable, particularly on on the recruiting level. I don't know, but I just, I just don't know what he is as a head coach. But I'm I'm not one that's that's that doesn't have confidence in Maryland's you know program upside. I, I think that's I think it's there. I think it's real. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I know it gets thrown around a lot, but I feel like there is like that still that sleeping giant no! kind of feel no! about Maryland just no! because. <laughs> With with the recruiting the the recruiting area that they have the talent in the area and in this you know just in the DMV and then close to Georgia and the Carolinas, the fact that they've got the Under Armour money behind them so they've got financial support and they have talent in the area I feel like they are just one right coach away from being able to compete with Penn State Michigan and Ohio State now who that coach is and whether it's Mike Loxley I don't know. As someone who uh, attended a school that was often called a sleeping giant, I can tell you that there's a reason for that, and it's that they would just rather take naps than get up and get it get to the game early. <laughs> they just would rather they would rather sleep in. That's why it's a sleeping giant. Um, all right, so Barton, we've got some uh, some shifting a little bit. Some some you were you were breaking some news this week on CBSSports.com. Uh, let's start with the head coaching job. We got Walt Bell. Sweet. Should we go uh, Colorado first? Oh, Mel Tucker. Are yeah. we official there? We're recording on Thursday. I think yeah, it's about are, to be. We are official. We are official. Yeah, we are official. Wednesday night. Um, that is official. We like it? I think so. I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, I feel the same way. I, like <laughs> I mean, Mel, like, when you're, a, when you're a Saban assistant and a Kirby Smart assistant, particularly on the defensive side of the ball... Then you know that like it's not like it's it, it you're operating and executing the blueprint that Saban and Smart have laid out, and so yes, Mel Tucker is clearly a competent and good defensive coordinator, but Mel Tucker hadn't had like a ton of uh, media exposure. You know, he's not those assistant coaches under those guys aren't. Um, talking a lot they're not they're, they don't get a lot of visibility um he's not been a head coach before obviously he, the, the only thing i have to go on is just that saban loves him kirby smart loves him and i have i am told that he like uh, specifically i heard that in the tennessee interview process last year he was the runner-up and and crushed it and and, and has been very impressive in, in the interview process for some of these jobs. So I, I, I suspect it's probably a pretty good hire though. I, it's sort of just, I would just kind of have to trust other people on that and trust some, some really good coaches in Nick Saban and Kirby smart. Yeah. For me, there's, there's a part that I have to get over is that Mel Tucker was the bears defensive coordinator for a short time. Period. Yeah. Things did not go well. So I have to, <laughs> I have to get past that and only pay attention to what he's, accomplished at Alabama and Georgia. And I feel like if there's anything good, I think it's nice that we finally see a Saban and a, you know, smart kind of coordinator get out of the SEC. So that way the SEC is not filled with these guys. So I think in the Pac-12 South, it'll be interesting to see because if you just look at the way that division's put together, Utah's a defensive-minded team. Herm Edwards took over at Arizona State. They've kind of made a shift to being a defensive-minded team. USC is always going to be a strong defensive team. And now Colorado, which I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but when was the last time they hired this, like a coach who didn't have an offensive background? Um, who did not? Ha- was Bill? I guess Bill McIntyre was an offensive coordinator. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I feel like they've been on a long run. I think McCartney might be the last guy they had that wasn't like a off, former offensive coordinator when they hired him. So I think well, that this is kind of... Oh. Mike McIntyre has has some defensive background. I mean, he, he was a D coordinator. He's, he's, he has coached some offense in the past two, but he was a defensive coordinator prior to his head coaching stints. Oh, okay. Then. Well, then that 
that's different. But I just I think that this is it's going to be interesting to see what kind of de- like identity this team has going forward and how that's going to work in the Pac-12, which, you know, I think whether fair or not is often viewed from outside the West Coast as being soft. And I don't I don't necessarily agree with that because I think that there's some very good defensive teams in the conference. So it'll just be interesting to see what kind of identity and culture he can bring to Colorado and how well he's going to be able to recruit there. Because, I mean, I know I wouldn't mind living in Boulder. So we'll see how he's able to sell it to kids. As with a lot of these coaches, it'll, you know, it'll be interesting to see who he hires on his staff because that'll, you know, that'll help determine how well he'll be able to recruit. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's, that's ultimately going to be the uh, – the indicator for for a lot of these coaches were you surprised at all that uh when push came to shove you know we, we kicked it around a little bit but that Derek mason didn't end up being more of a candidate someone with you know defensive chops more west coast connections and already some power five head coaching experience i i think Derek mason was a, was absolutely a candidate um and and i don't this is not based on pro- first hand sourcing um but my suspicion is that had Derek mason been the guy colorado wanted i i bet he would have taken it i think it would have made a lot of sense for him to take it um but uh so i think he was i think there was he was very seriously in the mix uh but i i just think that you know colorado ended up going with uh with mel tucker and and because look Derek mason that's a that's an area that, that he, he's familiar with. That's a conference he's familiar with. He's a, he gets a new shot clock with a new uh, athletic director uh, that's hired him rather than Vanderbilt who's hiring a new athletic director. So it would have made a lot of sense. Uh, but, uh, but I think we've talked about it on here, I think, before. Derek Mason's probably um, you know, deserves some credit for doing a really good job at Vanderbilt over the last couple of years. So I guess he sticks around, and uh, we, we still wait and see if uh... – if Vanderbilt, I mean, this season was a good. This season was a an expect a meeting expectation season for the Commodores, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Didn't exceed. Met. Met. You get yeah. a check. Um, yeah. I I can't help but look at Walt Bell leaving Florida State as number one a great opportunity. You know, he's been an offensive coach that's been on the rise here for the last couple years. And so you get a head coaching opportunity. Sometimes you got to take it. But I also wonder if the struggles of Florida State and whatever's going on inside that building and inside that locker room, if I was Walt Bell, if that wouldn't have me um, passing around my application to look for an opportunity to make a jump right now. Is that unfair to Florida State? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, and, I, and Josh Newberg on Knowles 247, yeah. Uh, reported a little bit on this on our site of 24 7 and he it, it, there's it appeared that i think bell was was kind of just look was looking around and was was very open to leaving um and i think at 34 years old uh with the kind of a rising star was his reputation at least before this year uh good recruiter good offensive mind he you know, it, it makes sense to go and try to take take over as a as get get your first head job, and you got a you've got an athletic director in Ryan Bamford who's young, who's energetic, who's probably going to really and, and and clearly wanted to hire a young coach himself that they could kind of build that thing together with. So if you're kind of if you're aligned with your AD and you've got an opportunity at a program where you can schedule whoever you want, you're not locked in at UMass as an independent to to some brutal schedule. You can just sort of make your schedule as difficult or as easy as you want it to be. Um, I mean, it, it it makes some sense to me to go ahead and, and jump on that opportunity to get into the head coaching spin cycle rather than risk another year under Willie Taggart. Who, and, and ultimately, he was running Willie Taggart's offense. He right. was trying to implement Willie Taggart's offense, and he wasn't even calling plays until the last four games of the year when Willie Taggart handed play-calling duties over to him. So just a just a tough situation to be in as an offensive coordinator to sort of take the ownership of that bad offense when in reality it was really the head guys, the head guys stuff they're running. Mm. Tom, you got any Walt Bell takes? It's a tough job. Good luck. 
UMass, I mean, like Bart was saying, you know, they have the benefit of being able to schedule as they want as an independent. It's just if you look at, you know, the location and the recruiting kind of landscape there, it's it's not going to be an easy place to win at. So good luck. Um, Will Healy did a lot at Austin P and did a lot really, really early, got the attention of uh, Barton Simmons, Nashville through and through and as well as the rest of the country and uh after charlotte they were uh they were talking to mike houston and then mike houston found out he was in the mix for ecu he sort of steps away from the conversations with charlotte but then did my question is did charlotte end up with maybe a better option overall barton by getting healy here yeah i mean for those who, who aren't familiar with will healy he took over an Austin P program, which is an FCS program in the OVC, that but prior to his arrival was on a, I believe, a 27-game losing streak. Uh, um, I think they'd won one game in their previous 46. Uh, just a total, like, could very well have been the worst program in Division One college football. Uh, he took over first year 0-11, but had some close games. Second year, they went 8-4. and and lost one game in the FCS. The other three losses were to Cincinnati, UCF, and some other power uh, FBS team. Um, so it was a it was an, a remarkable turnaround. They won five more games this year, uh, and I think and he's and it is another really young guy. He's thirty three, I think. Um, and it's it's all about and I think whether, whether it's Walt Bell at, at UMass, Will Healy at Charlotte. Uh, or um, Scott Satterfield at, at Louisville, I think we are seeing, even as even contrasted against the Mac Brown, Les Miles stuff a little bit, but I think we're seeing programs that are seeking out uh, the Dabo Sweeney model a little bit in terms of culture building, program building, positivity. Will Healy's never been a coordinator in his life. He's a, he, he just recruits his tail off, and uh, and and I think that's, at a place like Charlotte, at a program that's six years old, I think they're looking for someone that will just absolutely recruit their tail off and and build a good culture within that program. And I look, I think this is like the beginning. Like this is the first F or FBS job for Healy. You know, I, I think when he by the time he's forty, he'll have a Power Five job. And I mean, he's he's going to be a star in coaching. So it's it's a name worth remembering. I think a program worth keeping an eye on. So, Tom, all we have to do is be positive, and we, too, can be FBS head coaches <laughs> one day. Oh, I'm screwed. I know. That's going to be tough. That's going to be really tough. 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 <laughs> is it, like, when you look at the I've, – I've got uh, – when you look at the Charlotte job, Tom, do you, do you identify – how do you identify it in terms of it being an opportunity or it, it being – I mean, it's still a very, very new program. Like, and, you know, from, from a – I guess an outsider's perspective, how, how do you view that job and what do you think that ceiling is? I mean, I, I think that it is a new program, but I think that there's reason to be optimistic simply because of where the school's located and the fact that in Conference USA, it's not like you're dealing with a perennial power. You know what I mean? It's uh, like there are... For sure. Yeah, things things shift pretty quickly in that conference where one team could be, you know, the Middle Tennessees and the UABs next season could be the old Dominions and the UTSAs where things change quickly in, in Conference USA. So I feel like that's the kind of situation where for Healy to step in, it might not be that long until Charlotte's one of the better teams in Conference USA. The ceiling for Charlotte. Um, based on the people who are really believing. And that's like one of the reasons why the Charlotte job is, is getting talked about is because the message from within that program is, you know, we can be Memphis, we can be Cincinnati. I mean, they're setting their goal for the old Metro Conference, the old Conference USA programs that are now at the top of the American Athletic Conference. And if they're, they're not necessarily going to be competing against those schools, but when it comes time to be competing against uh, some, you know, hey, 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 Tom, the recruit, do you want to go to Murfreesboro or do you want to come to Charlotte? You know, do you? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I just I kind of feel like they are building that program in the idea that if they can get enough of that metro area to buy in, then they can very quickly see some of the same success that those other old 
uh, metro area conference schools. I guess Louisville being the you know the shining star of that, but that's what they're selling. And if and if they're able to get everybody on board, then you know that's 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 great for them. I I just still try and preach patience given how long that program's been around. And, and well, by the way, Charlotte, I mean they they've won five games these the last two years. It's not like it's a totally moribund program. Like it's a they were number eleven in the country in rushing defense. Like there's some pieces there that are that have a chance to be successful. So um, we're we're talking the hell out of some Charlotte today. Like it. That's 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 December Go Niners. Yeah, that's some December sixth <laughs> podcasting right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Tom. We uh, as as we look at the landscape of the entire when you always do your bowl rankings every single year. These are the best bowl games. We'll line them up. As you started to look at the matchups and as you started to to break them down, because is it like what what do you think has uh, what do you think are some of the under the radar bowl games that are not getting talked about? I mean, we've been just talking about the playoffs to death. What are the ones that you you immediately as you started putting together the rankings, you were like, ooh, and they started to slide up the rankings in a way that might have surprised you based on either the bowl or the teams that were in it. Well, I, I like the Las Vegas Bowl between Fresno and Arizona State, although the loss with Nikhil Harry not playing in the game, that kind of hurts a little bit. But I just, I always enjoy seeing those matchups of good group of five teams against power five teams. And not necessarily, you know, the top of the tier from power five, but just teams they can match up well with. And I think that that's the kind of game that's going to be a decent matchup. The first responder bowl between Boston College and Boise State, I think, is a game that just. From ability-wise, style-wise, it's not going to be pretty, but I think it's going to be an entertaining game, and it's going to be a close game. See that when I when I look at these games, I'm not just trying to figure out what games are going to be, you know, 45 to 42, and be the most, you know, crazy fun game to watch. I'm just I'm looking at matchups and styles that kind of work well together, just as well as teams that are somewhat on the same ability level to ensure that the game's going to be a closer game. So. These kind of games that most people overlook, like the Dollar General Bowl between Buffalo and Troy, you've got the runner-up in the MAC going up against the runner-up in the Sun Belt. Those are two very good teams. You've got a you know NFL prospect quarterback in Tyree Jackson in, Buff- in Buffalo. You've got a Troy defense that has been very good. To see Jackson in the Buffalo offense go against that Troy defense, to me, is something that's very interesting, and that makes something like the Dollar General Bowl really interesting to me. Well, you know, most people will probably just look past it because they see Buffalo versus Troy. Yeah, but Buff- Buffalo let me down in the MAC championship game, and the MAC has been so bad this year. It's going to be a hard sell for Buffalo. Oh, it won't be easy for him, but you know it's it's going to be an interesting matchup, particularly if if you're keeping an eye forward on Tyree Jackson's NFL future. Sure. It's be inter- like we saw, he struggled against Northern Illinois, although I think that was more the offensive line than Jackson, and it'll be interesting to see how they deal with with Troy. Um, when I look at a game of what would be brand name uh, programs, but that I'm I'm failing to find some excitement for, uh, and I. Like sell me on Penn State, Kentucky, because I cannot help but look at this game, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, so Penn State, Trace McSorley, Miles Sanders, good offense, Kentucky, great defense, Josh Allen leading the way, Kentucky offense, not so good, Penn State defense, okay, but by no means dominant. It's like there's one side of the ball where I'm really excited to see the matchups, and then there's another side of the ball where I'm uh I'm struggling a little bit to get excited. But see, that's that's kind of what makes that game interesting to me because it is going to be fun to watch the Penn State offense go against the Kentucky defense. But I do think that while we don't think of Kentucky as an offensive team and it's a team that's led by its defense, like you said, Penn State's defense is good, but it's not yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. So that going against the Kentucky offense, maybe the Kentucky offense is able to get a little bit more. I think it's an interesting matchup. I mean, these are two top 15 teams for a reason. They've played well, so... I know it's not exciting. It it finished at 13 in my bowl rankings, but that was mostly due to, I feel like, the odds of it being a closer game and as far as the similarities, as far as how the teams stacked up in my own personal ratings and how as far as Vegas views them. So that kind of boosted its spot a little bit in the rankings, but I, I'm I'm intrigued by this matchup. I think it could be kind of fun. Where do can you... I, can I, oh, yeah, can I make a case for Kentucky's offense? Yes, please. Go for it. <laughs> 
So here's what I like about Kentucky's offense is they kind of have a quarterback that doesn't really throw it that well. They've got a good offensive line. And they have Lynn Bowden is a really explosive playmaker at receivers. So they got one of those. Uh, and they got a running back that they can feed the, feed the rock to. But they also have a really creative offensive coordinator. So it's sort of, I, I like watching Kentucky because I like just sort of watching how Eddie Grant is going to just sort of scheme. It just looks like it's so difficult to come up with yardage, but they're going to they're going to do it somehow, some way. Uh, and so I just sort of like the I like watching the you know the algebra take place in in Eddie Grant's mind as as he tries to sort through how he's going to figure out how this this personnel is going to move the football. What about the backfill of the Penn State defense? Is that a group that we see take a step forward with the extra bowl practices? I mean, I guess. Mm, not a lot of confidence there. I don't know what to think about Penn State's defense. I don't I don't think it's that bad. I mean, if you go by S&P Plus, it's the 11th best defense in the country. It's just, I, I think Penn State's defense has been more of a problem stopping the run than it is stopping the pass. And I think that kind of with Benny Snell on Kentucky, that's going to be one thing I think to keep an, keep an eye on in this game that could make it interesting. Well, that, that's my point. Is like I don't really know what to think about Penn State's defense in the sense like I don't know whether I do I think they're do I think they need a lot of improvement? Do they think they're already good? Do they they're just they're I just they're just sort of a I um, think they've gotten better as the year went along. Yeah. Like early in the year in that game in that opener against Appalachian State, it was like, "Oh wow, they really do had to replace nine people on this defense, didn't they?" Because it was it was obvious early that there was a lot of inexperience. I think as the season's gone along, as naturally happens, people get more familiar with their jobs and what they're supposed to do and they just start performing better because there's plenty of talent. I think it was just experience and knowledge of the defense that was missing for the most part early. Um, what about Barton? Any, uh, Oh, how about this? Where do you think is the most likely group of five over power five win? And I'm going to throw out the Las Vegas bowl. Cause you already mentioned it. I would, then I'd go right back to the first responder. I think Boise is going to beat Boston college. Yeah. Boston College was moving in the wrong direction at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think Boise is a team that, you know, it's it has an Alexander Madison who is a very good running back. It's got a veteran quarterback, and it's got a sturdy, stout defense. So I, I think that that's a team that could easily beat Boston College. Barton, do you have any uh, any any bowl games off the radar that have been popping in, in your eyes as you've been laying out your holiday calendar? Um. You know, I think MTSU App State will be a fun game. Uh, I think Memphis Wake will be a fun game just because Memphis appears to be a team that can score on anybody and anyone can score on them. Uh, what's the what's the um, holiday bowl this year? No, oh, Northwestern Utah. That's always the fun one where they just where they, it's just a shootout. And this year, it's not. <laughs> it's not going to be a shootout this year. <laughs> Man, what a buzzkill that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Buckle up, baby. 13 to 9. What's the total at in that game? Let me check real quick. I think I it's at up 40 or 41. Yeah, I think it's something like that. I, I don't remember. I don't think there were any bowl games in the 30s because I thought that that one might be. It is currently at 45. Wow, under. Wow. Under. Yeah. Somebody's a little optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I still think Houston Army is going to be a fun game too. Because yeah, yeah, there's there, there's a Power Five group I'm upset that could take place. I, I feel like I wish Ed Oliver was playing because I think that would be fun. But if I'm Ed Oliver and I have the NFL draft in my future, I don't want to be facing Army's cut blocks either. No, <laughs> no. yeah, he should just like. Yeah, did, when did he announce? Did he just wait till the wait till the pairings came out, and he was like, no, "Oh he, hell no!" <laughs> he was before the pairings, but had he been waiting, as soon as he saw Army, he'd be like, "Nope, I'm out." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like if they play, uh, who's what would be the easiest for an Ed Oliver? Um, a wide open spread passing team. Yeah, probably. Just stand up pass rush for uh, states. Yeah, yeah, playing yeah. Washington State at Oliver would be the safest. Yeah, yeah, but no, Army is the least safe team for uh, for Ed Oliver. 
Uh, oh, speaking of, before we get out of here for the listeners, Tom, you got Army Navy picks? Uh, yeah, first of all, take the under. Always. Always take the Always under. Always take the under. In service Academy games. The under has gone, let's see, 16 and 5 in the last 21 meetings between these two. And just overall, over the last 10 years, the under is like about 78% in games between service academies. But if you're looking to bet the spread, to go along with the under, I would take Navy. The underdog is 4-0 in the last four meetings, and it's covered in eight of the last nine, I believe. So, yeah, Navy plus seven, and the under is the way to go. It always comes down to, like, the because because I want to take Army here because Army is the better team, and Army's been off for all this time, and, and Navy's been really, really bad this year. Army should win this game, but I would feel a lot better if it was six and a half. At seven, it just... It feels feels like this game's going to be 17 to 10 and I'm walking away with the push or even worse 17 13 and Tom gets the cover. Yeah, since 2011 I think there's only been one game between these two that finished with a deficit more than 7 points. What a gentlemanly game. I don't think it's gentlemanly. I think it's I think it's the two offenses and the limiting of possessions for either side makes it hard for one team to pull away. The Spider-Man meme? Mm-hmm. What do you, what, Barton? You got any Army Navy read? No, not really. I mean, I, I, I would be. I think probably. I, I think I picked for expert picks Army to cover. Uh, though certainly in this game, a, uh, you know, a, 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 a rivalry game with an option options offense Navy makes sense. But I think Army's just you know they've been the underdog in this one for a while. Now it's time for them to assert their authority. So that's kind of why I picked Army, I think. But this is this is more this is more for Nelly's wheelhouse. I, this is this is not this is this is not my sport here. It feels like Army's going to go up by seven, and then they're just going to sit on it, and then we're just going to watch them punt back and forth for a long time. Because in the Air Force game, I think Army went up fourteen nothing but then ended up holding on for like a 17-13 win. Army's, yeah. If you're going to make a pick on this game, maybe Navy's the play. Are Army and Navy allowed to switch offenses? Honestly, can you imagine? <laughs> it, like, That's part of the deal in this game is they get in this game and it's just who can defend and who can execute the option offense better. And I just can't even imagine if one of these teams tried to come in there and start playing, you know, Air raid, <laughs> and it's air raid versus option. That wouldn't would feel, wouldn't feel American. That would be a tragedy. It would be a tragedy. <laughs> um. All right. Any anything else on the notebook? Do we miss anything? Nah. Nah. We all good. Nah. Uh, we'll be back next week as we start to get into actually previewing the bowl games. We'll be grading coaching hires. We still got Georgia Tech and a few other Power 5 jobs that need to be filled. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Peace.